Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi there, it's Annika. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's Speak Up Conversation. Assessing children for a possible autism spectrum disorder diagnosis is tricky. The impact of your diagnostic formulation on a child and family is life-changing, so I have always felt a lot of pressure to get my assessments just right. But how do you do that, especially when you're asked to complete an assessment without being part of a multidisciplinary ASD assessment team? To help us all with our ASD assessments, I have the great pleasure in welcoming Robin Stephen to the podcast today. Robin has been the Director and Principal Clinician of Melbourne Child Development, a multidiscipline allied health practice for 25 years. She is a speech pathology consultant at Melbourne Paediatric Specialists, a part of Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital, and is one of the founders of their developmental and autism assessment teams, which each comprise a speech pathologist, paediatrician and clinical psychologist. Robin was on the steering committee for the development of the National Guideline for the Assessment and Diagnosis of Autism Spectrum Disorders in Australia, led by Professor Andrew Whitehouse, and was recently on the working party for the soon-to-be-released Speech Pathology Australia updated clinical guidelines called Evidence-Based Practice in Working with Individuals on the Autism Spectrum, led by Associate Professor David Trembath. So it is fair to say we are going to learn a thing or two about improving our ASD assessments today. Thank you so much for joining me, Robin. Oh, thank you so much, Annika. I hope I can live up to those expectations. I'll you do my will. best. You will and more, I am sure. So there is a lot that goes into a thorough ASD assessment. So I'm wondering if we could start at the start with our first client contact. Mm. I'm so, so interested to hear your thoughts on what we should be doing at that first point of contact for these little ones that come through our door. Absolutely, Annika. Thank you. That's a great question. And as we know, practically in our clinics that we get um, calls from uh, parents. Uh, we do, In our clinics, we do a new client call for every uh, family that rings us. And it's from that call that we ask questions like, um, what's the reason for you seeking a speech pathology assessment? Um, and tell us a little bit about your child. And even, you know, even from those couple of questions, you can start to uh, get a little bit of an idea about um, what's going on for that child and some of the concerns that the family might have. And then in that time, you also might find out that, oh, it was actually the kinder teacher that suggested we get a speech pathology assessment, or actually it was, um, we've been to see a paediatrician and the paediatrician said we need a speech pathology assessment. So um, very occasionally it might be, you know, we've had a psychology assessment. Um, and I think it's getting better where there's more clarity in those referrals, where the paediatrician might also have written a letter to say, 
that we want uh, a speech pathology assessment as part of um, an autism spectrum um, disorder assessment. But um, if you're a clinic that are known to, to provide holistic assessments of children, you know, as we know, the kindergarten teacher up the road is going to say, look, I think there's um, this child is, is struggling many aspects of the group um, and in, in their social interaction, but they might find that the parents um, are very in the very early stages of learning about their child's development, and so they may refer the child for some speech sound delay. So it's really the whole assessment process starts at that very first conversation that you're having with the family, and then we when well, we're fortunate enough to have either senior clinicians to do those conversations but many speech pathologists out there are doing them mm. if they're you know first or second year out um, and so we can start to formulate a plan about what sort of an assessment we need to do um, now we do pretty much a standard holistic assessment for every child um, and depending what stage the parents are at uh, that's when we might um, add on some additional uh, aspects that are going to help us with uh, the complete autism uh, mm. assessment. And can I ask, Robin, what are those additional aspects that you might add on if you're feeling that, yes, this is the assessment uh, yeah. pathway that we're taking with this little one? Well, I think in the initial, I think that, uh, and this was pointed out too in the, in the national guidelines, um, that the parent understanding of the assessment process is critical and it's really worth spending time making sure they understand what you plan to do. Mm -hmm. So um, our standard assessments would have um, an interview questionnaire, which is quite a detailed questionnaire. And then we, over many years, have learnt that it is best just to have a parent session where we go through that questionnaire um, we ask for more expansion in certain areas that we're interested in. And of course, telehealth has made that uh, so much easier for families now. So um, we might, uh, for example, if, if we ask about the child, uh, does the child ever get frustrated in certain situations and the parents have ticked yes, we try and have drop down so it's not too complicated. Mm. Uh, and then we'll say, well, can you give us an example of when the child might get frustrated with a certain situation? And what does the frustration look like? You know, are they um, they're lying on the floor? Are they kicking other people? Are they running into a? Are they, are they crawling under a table? Are they running away? What does it look like? And how long does that behaviour continue for? And how many times are you dealing with that in a day? So that's the time in that parent um, speech pathology interview where you're getting a lot more information. Mm. Um, and then we have our clinical sessions. So um, where the, the family come in, and this is where we uh, always try and do, we do a, a play assessment or an interaction as, um, opportunity depending on the age of the, tri of the child. Mm. Um, so obviously as all good speech pathologists, we have our room all set up for um, a play assessment for the play opportunities that are uh, appropriate for that child's age. I mean, we know in our play assessments, if we just put out cause and effect toys, then mm -hmm. a nine-year-old is going to play with cause and effect toy and that doesn't give us an assessment of the child's play ability. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, play or an interaction opportunity, I can talk about what you might do with an older child. 
Um, and then we do um, try and do a, a psychometric language assessment mm. as much as possible. So we might try and do the PLS-5, the SELF-5, the um, SELF-P3. Um, for the under-3s, we typically uh, do the real. Uh, there's the real 4 out now, which is a receptive expressive emergent language scale. That's mm-hmm. actually a parent interview. Yep. Um, but they would find that's really, really um, helpful. Um, and um, so that can sort of take, might take one or two in-clinic sessions mm-hmm. to do a language assessment. It's so worthwhile though. I mean, I'm mm. working with more school-age kids, so not quite the little ones I know that you work with also. Mm. Um but over the years, I've developed that as standard protocol that I will do a cell five. And I found that so useful mm. as a means of comparison, if nothing else, to their pragmatic kind of presentation. Absolutely. Um, but you're right. It takes it takes time. Mm. <laughs> it takes Absolutely. time in that assessment battery. Yeah. And when I'm doing, when we're doing the feedback session with the parents, so I talk about um, those standardised language assessments as being you know, like the carpenter who has his toolbox of tools. Mm-hmm. Now, the carpenter has the tools, but the carpenter then, you know, is an expert in going out and creating and building with those tools. And so mm-hmm. when we do these standard language assessments, we're looking at what tools does this child have in their receptive or their understanding of what you say to them and their expressive uh, language toolbox that then go out and interact with the, um, their education centre, interact with their community interact um, with their ex- more extended family. Mm, um, I love that analogy. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It, it, yeah, it really makes sense to the parents because, yeah, of course, yeah. then we've got the, the pragmatic language aspects of the assessment. Mm. Um, look, I, um, if anyone wants to ask me or if you wanted to ask me and, and you know, Annie Karen, other speech pathologists know, when you do something, when you do the self, there are certain um, responses that give you a little bit of an indication of the way that the um, individual is thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's as well as getting, um, you know, an idea of, their, of their, what are in their toolbox, there's lots of um, particular strengths and particular challenges and patterns. And they're not all the same as we know, you know, the saying, you've met one child with, Autism, autism spectrum disorder. One met child one with child autism. autism spectrum yep. <laughs> so, um, but there are, yeah, there are some um, patterns that we see, or some, um, yeah, in some of the in some of the subtests, um, and I think that this is where um, the national guidelines talk about an assessment of function, and I think this is what speech pathologists are amazing at doing. We do this holistic assessment of function. And um, by delving into the self, even at that point, it gives us really great information to be say to be you know talking about in the recommendations. Mm. So, for example, if the child is um, having difficulty with subordinate conjunctions, you know, if then, mm-hmm. uh, if the boy doesn't wake up when his alarm goes off, then he's going to miss the bus. Then you can talk about it's really hard for that child to see cause and effect. And to see links between information. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking to this child, you're going to need to make the information very specific for them mm-hmm. in terms of that the alarm tells us we need to get up. We need to get up because we need the bus is going to come past our door at 
this time. You know, you have mm. to make the links for people, as we know, in autism spectrum disorder, that mm. this is one of the challenges for them. And that sort of falls in then to their intervention plan, which I yes. know comes way, way down the track, but it becomes yes. something clinically significant for that mm. later on too. Mm. Well, I think when we write up our reports, we do try and pick out some of those specifics, specifics as well as um, our goal is not just um, a, a yes, no diagnosis. It's really working out the, um, it really is an assessment of function mm. and and trying to pick out some really helpful information for families and educators to use straight away because they want that information straight away. That's exactly right, exactly Mm. right. And I'm just wondering in terms, I mean, that's looking at core language. Yeah. In this area specifically of pragmatic language, and I know this varies depending on the age of the child that you're doing the assessment with, but do you use any standardised assessments in that uh, domain? Um, Well, we do use... um, we use the topple. Um, mm-hmm. That's really old now. And, it is old. <laughs> and we, sorry, when I say we use it, like really, really, we yes, might use it yep. if we've got a, a, you know, a sixteen-year-old, and we just yes. want to look at a couple of pictures. Yep. Um, in that way, if you're familiar with how the topple works, you could get some better, more up-to-date pictures from mm-hmm. um, everyday speech or, um, you know, yep. off the internet. Um, in terms of other pragmatic assessments. Um, we also use the test of narrative language, which we find mm-hmm. really informative mm-hmm. um, because it's about comprehend- story comprehension um, and it's about creation of stories. And particularly when you get to the last um, little subtest where the um, individual has to make an imaginative story from mm. the model of the story you gave them pre- pre- uh, previously, that is so interesting there, yeah. of course, to see that, you know, I had a, um, a year 12 student who was an absolute maths genius and he got to that point, um, the test goes to 16 years of age, and he said, well, well, I don't know what's going to happen next. It's like this, there's nothing in the picture and you haven't told me what happens next. Yeah. And I explained to him that actually telling a story was actually like a mathematical equation and we could teach him the mathematical equation for telling a story and he was like, really? Oh. Wow. <laughs> so, the, yeah, we find the test of narrative languages can be really um, helpful. But, of course, the checklists. Mm. Um, we use um, checklists and remind me to talk about the observations in the session, of yes. course. Yes, yeah, of um, course. But the check, uh, we use the um, PRAG profile from the self. Yeah. Um, and we also do use um, the CCC too, the Children's Communication. Yes, I love that. I yeah. use that routinely. I find yeah. that very, very useful. Absolutely. So we do mm. both of those and we um, the parent does them and the educator does them. So by yeah. educator I'm talking about, it might be in childcare, the um, childcare um, educator, um, kindergarten educator or at school. Mm. So um, they both complete the, the checklists. Um, of course, there's so many observations you'll be making from Incidentally. The, t- the time yeah. you meet that individual in the waiting room. So in terms of what are they interested in in the waiting room, how well can they transition from the waiting room to your clinic room? You know, are they um, walking down the corridor, running their hands along the wall? Are they walking on tippy toes? Are they walking with a wide base gate? Have they noticed the numbers on the doors walking down to your numbers? Have they noticed patterns on the wallpaper? Are they wearing a particular T-shirt of their, you know, particular Favourite, area? preferred interest. Yep. Interest. 
what happens when they come into the room? You know, how do they interact with the toys that you have available for them? Do they go immediately to your keyboard on the desk? And that's the thing that they are attracted to. So there's like so much, um, the greeting, you know, the mm-hmm. eye contact, the body posture, the body um, turning to, to greet you, mm-hmm. um, ability to um, answer those, you know, soft uh, questions, how, how are you going? How are you today? Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, detec- we're a detective. That's how absolutely. I see it. We're a detective from that first second that we actually um, interact with that little one. You're just soaking in all of that, mm-hmm. um, all of that that's going on, on around you, that's for sure. That's what the clinical guidelines were talking about. And we mm-hmm. are, you know, speech pathologists are experts in communication. So, you know, our training, we, we are already... Uh, have have so many skills in that area, and and what mm. we're doing is bringing our skills to this assessment, mm. Mm. and and knowing a little bit better what to look for. Yes. I think it is because yes. I think that I know. Um, you know, early career speeches are not necessarily trained in this space during uni. So it becomes something that they learn on the job, but they've got the core skills. It's just refining them to be a bit more ASD yes. specific, yes. I find, yes. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I give us some suggestions for some, some, mm-hmm. some older children? And you will yes, too, Annie, because you see some of those. I, I'm sort of, when I talk about older children, I'm sort of talking about nine or ten mm-hmm. um, and above. Um, so when we do, we instead of a play assessment, you know, as you would do, we do an interaction assessment of some description. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might have some game, you know, Jenga or something that you're playing with them or um, with um girls who love to draw but also I think most you know most kids love to draw we do a mind map so because children with most children with ASD have um, pretty complex motor planning difficulties we would draw our mind map first so you'd have me in the middle and then you'd have about four bubbles going off the side and you'd have topics like you know pets and family and um, things and things you like to watch and Um, favorite foods or something and so we do you know we do a bubble each as we go and there's so it just provides a focus on the drawing um, and it enables them to write or to draw little pictures and again as speech pathologists we get a little bit of an insight into their writing and into their spelling Mm -hmm. um, and enables that um, assessment of that reciprocity between you know if they say oh oh I've got a dog and you say oh I've got a pet too. Do they ask the next question? Does anything come after that? Or then then they say, you know, I've also got a mouse. You know, I've also got um, a cat. So it's it's testing that reciprocity, mm-hmm. um, testing uh, whether they can change topic uh, or whether they start on a particular topic and it's really hard to, mm-hmm. to move them from that topic. So there's lots there's lots you could do in that informal. Mm. I like too though how it's takes the focus off a pressured interaction because you're both focusing on your drawing so that pressure for eye contact and all those things that we know that a a child that possibly has a diagnosis of ASD is going to find tricky Mm. I like I really like that as as a a nice kind of way of doing that sort of more um, incidental type connection activity because it does take a bit of pressure off I have also been known to do things like walk away from the table and see if they're still talking to me, (laughs) drop my pencils on the ground and see if they'll still talk to me or whether they'll help me pick them up. There's so many little things, isn't there, that you can do within such an informal activity um, to get so much information. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I've got I've got so many questions buzzing through my head. Yes, 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 yes. But one that I do have is do you tend to do an observation in the child's natural environment as part of your assessment or is that yeah. I mean yeah. I know logistically that's, yeah. that's really challenging for some practitioners yeah. to do but I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. Look, that's an absolute must. You know, yeah. we we absolutely do that and when you said um what changes um, might we add to our um, assessment depending on the initial phone mm. call with the parents if we might plant the seed to say we're going to do this we're going to do an interview with you because you know your child the best we want to learn all about your child and of course that what goes with that is all of the um, reports and information that have come with the child that you have to digest as well and incorporate um, and we might and we might say we're going to have these um, language assessments explain what they are in layman's terms and we'll say and we might also want to go to your um, to do an observation session at your child's education centre and um, talk to the teacher so if we are going down the ASD path and even if we even if we're not calling it an ASD assessment but we can see it's required we're Mm. still doing that to collect all of that information to pass on Um, Mm. If we've got somebody working with us, like if we know that a psychology assessment has started, then we would check in because I I believe you only need one person to do that observation. So if the psychologist has gone to the school and and done the observation, I mean, depending on who who you're working with, I suppose, but most people I work with, I know if they've done the school observation, Mm -hmm. then I would get information from them as to what they were seeing. Yes, so I think speech pathologists are particularly good at doing that, though. Mm. Oh, it's so interesting, isn't mm. it? Absolutely. And sometimes you see a different little child <laughs> from Absolutely. what you've seen in your clinic room in both ways. Sometimes yes. you're like, oh, wow, they're presenting a lot more um, you know, showing more skills than I expected, or yeah. sometimes it's absolutely vice versa, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really telling. Um, I re- that was really interesting, though, what you said about um, if there is a little diagnostic team that's happening around this child. So you've got a psychologist that's commenced their um, component of mm-hmm. perhaps this um, ASD assessment, if that's what we're going to call it, yeah. and you've started. It's so crucial to communicate with that person. But I'm going to be honest, that does not always happen. no. no. <laughs> What's your experience? I totally agree with you. And um, I think this is where getting the history from the family is really important as to who, what have they done? Who are they seeing? Because the family don't always make join the dots between Mm. because they're seeing a psychologist. It's really important that you know about that. So it's really important to drill down with the family. And then, yes, we are are often the initiators. Um, I like once something I learned from a psychologist I was working with and he would email me when he commenced an assessment with a child, you know, just, just letting you know I've commenced mm. an assessment with such and such. And that would alert me that even though they might be coming to me, I would be checking in with that psychologist along the way. Um, and I think it's important to do that too if you know the child's paediatrician because, for example, um, we have an example where, um, you know, I worked with another clinician here and we did a massive workup on this um, sort of late primary school child. Um, we knew when the paediatrician appointment was, um, and but then the family got an early appointment. They went into the appointment. The paediatrician didn't ask, "Are you seeing a speech pathologist?" Um, and we hadn't. Uh, the family didn't have the report with them. We had finished it, but 
that the pediatrician made a single clinician diagnosis, like mm. in a 30-minute consult. Mm -hmm. Now, in that situation, fortunately, it was accurate, but, but they didn't have the hours mm. of work we'd done and the observation visit. Mm. So, yes, the... the um, Communication is really critical. Some of the pediatricians are amazing and they yes. will ring you. Yes. Yeah. But not but always. Just, no. <laughs> no. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is a slight frustration from time to time, mm. that's for mm. sure. Um, a couple of other burning questions that I have yeah. buzzing around my head is, I guess, um, girls with ASD. Do you approach an assessment with a little one who is a girl any differently to what you would with a little one who's a boy? Um. I think that's a really great, great question. And I would say not really, um, because if they're little and you're doing a play assessment, then you're looking at that, like we use the Karen Stegnetti um, mm -hmm. uh, play levels and when we're setting up our play. And so it's, you know, whether they're at the, the stage of um, symbolising events outside of their daily activity, or even if they're symbolising events um, of their everyday activity, Many children with ASD are not very good with dolls and babies so that you would have something like a teddy or a character toy that they can use instead of um, a doll to be doing uh, feeding and sleeping mm. and, and mm. bathing. Uh, so I wouldn't sort of be, this. it'd be the same setup in those um, toys. Definitely with um, the older children, uh, the mind map and the drawing and the coloured pencils are very attractive to um to girls, but it's more the observations that you are mm. making because girls um, who may uh, be on the spectrum have much more subtle presentations. So they can obviously mm. often be uh, interested in exactly the same things that their peers are interested, you know, in unicorns or fairies or mm. ballerinas, but it's like the intensity mm. of which they are interested and the way that they play with uh toys that are, are related to that interest um, and also um, girls with ASD can often um, be I mean they're very crafty too so they sort of like doing craft like like their peers would like doing craft but they can often have uh, repetitive thoughts um, going on in their head that you can't see that but the repetitive part of the uh, diagnosis is actually a script that's going on in their head mm. and often it might be around fantasies and um, you know dolphins and um, and you know and their imaginary play can be very good too it can be mm. quite fantastic but it's not reciprocal it's all about them mm. and their own little world you know with this and they can be quite verbal you know this chatty um, dialogue that's going on so it's really mm. more the the observations that you're making I, I think yeah, and you're right. I think, I mean, I'm very lucky that I work at a school, so I get to see the kids at school socialising. Mm. And some of those um, pragmatic difficulties in regards to friendships, which obviously we know is part of the DSM-5 criteria, mm. are much more subtle. Mm. Um, you're not necessarily seeing perhaps a little one that wants to be on their own, which no. with some boys is much more obvious when you go mm. and observe them and you're like, oh, they've got no interest in actually mm. connecting with their peers. They have a lot of interest, I find, mm. in doing mm. that, but it's just mm. not always working out. So you do mm. have to be, um, if I harp on my detective analogy, mm. you do have to be a bit more of a detective, I find. Mm. And if you don't dig 
those layers mm. a little bit more deeply, I think mm. sometimes it is easy to say, well, perhaps this little one doesn't have ASD, but mm. maybe we haven't dug deep enough um, yeah, or I mean, looked it's deeply like, enough. Yes, absolutely. Um, that it's things like looking, you know, for um, group games, you know, the winnings, mm-hmm. winning and losing and if they um, have to leave the game because they, it's not their turn as to what sort of a um, meltdown they're going to have because they're mm. not um, in that game. And it's, it's also sometimes to see the um, the peers that they relate to. So the other other peers that they are able to relate to and um, who might have some similar social mm. pragmatic styles to totally the ones agree. they do. Mm. Totally agree. All right, one of my other questions, and this is one that I often clinically um, you know, confuses me when I've done a whole lot of assessment and work and I'm still at a point where I'm like, I feel this kid is so borderline. I'm not mm. sure. What what do you do at that point if you really feel like you've got this child that is so borderline in terms of meeting the criteria? Yeah, I'm really interested in your thoughts and what you might do in a situation like that. Uh, that's, that's a really good question and that happens quite often. And so I think what thinking about our assessment and this is this is was really useful to me just in a feedback that I did um, a week ago where the parents were not really um, at the point of wanting to explore a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder so I talked about that we had conducted an assessment of functioning so we um, so I talked about where this uh, little one, little one was in all of those aspects of interaction play um, where where their language were where the little idiosyncrasies were in their language um, where they were pragmatically where they were with their peers and as an assessment of function and to say and and said that I mean in your diagnosis in your formulation summary then you are saying that this little one um, is presenting with um difficulty with social uh, reciprocity and social communication, um, difficulty with, you know, non-verbal skills, uh, difficulty with friendships appropriate for their age. Um, They, you know, play in this particular way um, with, you know, repetitive, um, organised way. Uh, So you sort of make that sort of two-line statement and to say that, uh, after um, this little one has been at um, in the kindergarten group for six months, uh, then uh, a review is highly mm-hmm. recommended. Yep. And I mean, it's it's so interesting now, isn't it? Because these little ones have been um, mm. locked up in COVID for two years. So yes. I think that we go, we're going to have many more of those sorts of statements where we need yes. to say, let them go to kinder for six months. Yep. Let's just wait and review. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really good advice. And I totally agree with you. Two years of disrupted social learning mm. is definitely going to have an impact mm. um, on our kids. Absolutely. And we certainly don't want to be falling into into the trap of thinking that that falls under something neuroatypical when, in fact, it's just a consequence of mm. not having an opportunity, <laughs> that's for sure. Um uh, just another question. I, I really feel like NDIS has complicated this level one, level two, level three ASD diagnosis. <laughs> um, 
and you know that's I guess anything that has something related to funding always sort of complicates um, diagnoses it's happened you know with other diagnoses in the past depending on where funding mm. is um, you know allocated at the time what do you think about when you're thinking about whether a child might be a level one which obviously is that mild um, mild group of kids or kids that present with mild impacts of ASD versus our twos and threes what are some of the things you think about when you're sort of trying to decide or or do you even decide whether they do yeah we to one of those levels mm, yeah it's a really great question we definitely do try and decide um, because we we have done a really big workup so we really do have a very good picture of the child I mean, I think the level threes are clearer because yes. they yep. may have Much. intellectual disability, they may yep. be non-verbal or they may be so impacted by their um, sensory and regulation that you know, they um, react in um, a very significant way to their environment and they need. So level threes requires very substantial support. Yep. Um, level two is um, requires substantial support. And that is where they, you know, are having difficulty with their um, uh, social interactions, their friendships. But, you know, to me, it's it's the use or the understanding of social context um, and social messages in their education. They're missing out so much in receiving the educational information because they're not reading the context and the teacher and um, and their peers. Um, and also sometimes their um, repetitive or their restricted interests are really interfering with their um, capacity to be able to take on um, information that's not of their interest. So that's that's level two. Um, so I think that they are, to me, they're, they're fairly clear. To me, level one is not clear at all mm. because mm-hmm. I feel that, um, a child who sounds like a level two is going to be placed in a, ma- you know, he's going to be at a mainstream school mm-hmm. and that is going to be a massive struggle for them, you know, hour after Without hour. support. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, high risk of anxiety and, you know, we know with the old or still the funding system that the children struggle so much that they end up getting a di- diagnosis of a social emotional problem and that's mm. how they get their funding because they, they're so distressed in that environment. So to me, um, what is level one? To me, is is level one is is what we sometimes see in um, uh, in the community where we see high functioning people who are you know are sort of managing quite well and um, maybe they've created their own supports. I, I find mm. level one, one. I agree. I totally very difficult agree. To- I I feel like they're the people that aren't diagnosed. Yes. Yes. I don't know if that's, you know, a flippant thing to say. I apologise if it is, but um, I feel like sometimes that is that group of people that present socially in a slightly quirky way that we come across all the time in our interactions mm. in our everyday life that perhaps don't have a diagnosis would fall into that mm. group. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, um, it's interesting to chat through it because it is something I've often kind of grappled with a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it, as we know in our roles as speech pathologists and and talking to parents and getting information from parents um, we do know that there's a genetic link in um, autism spectrum disorder and there's sort of the genetic link from the phenotypes of you know ADHD as well and um, some other sort of mental health disorders and language disorder 
Um, so often when you're working with the parents, just the way you're communicating with one or both of the parents would um, indicate that there are some difficulties with language processing and uh, that the social side of the language processing and, and the emotional um, responses. And many times you can hear and see from their experiences that they're having a hard time. You know, they're having a hard time in their workplace and in the community and, um, and, and managing the complexities of families. So who is level one? And I'm, I probably should be able to, with my no. experience... <laughs> No, I, I agree. I think it's it's um it's a dilemma. It's absolutely, mm. and it's good to sort of talk it out a little bit because it is something I think people do think about sometimes. Mm. Definitely. Mm. Um. Okay. My final question is about the new national guidelines mm. for the assessment and diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder in Australia that I know you were involved in. I'm just wondering whether these guidelines will change, or if anything's come from the guidelines that might change the practice of a speech pathologist in terms of doing an ASD assessment. Mm. Well, I I like, so I was involved in the steering committee and then recently I was asked to look at the national guidelines in terms of assessment of functioning and reading them through again, I there were some really valuable uh, points that I took from that that I want to incorporate into my practice. And I do think this whole, um, whole uh, structure or framework of thinking about your assessment is an assessment of functioning and which may or may not lead you to a, a diagnosis mm-hmm. um, and that is so helpful in talking to parents that like the parents of this little girl recently you know to be able to say what we've done is an assessment of functioning at this point in time we're seeing all of this um, uh, and but you know we need to monitor this yeah. and at that point the family may or may not be asking you do you think there is autism or not autism mm-hmm. um, and I in that situation I said that autism can't be ruled out. Mm-hmm. So um, particularly those borderline kids, if, when, if the mm. parents ask the question, I say autism can't be ruled out at this stage. Mm. For us to think about assessment of functioning and to think about what is it that the individual needs and family needs right now and what supports they need and what we can put into place. And I also um, took away, I thought it was a really great concept to ask the parents right at the initial interview, what do you think are the barriers to your child's functioning like in your home? And maybe they've already made some changes and, and used some strategies. And of course, that's incredibly informative. And what do you think are the barriers to your child um, developing optimally and feeling comfortable in their education environment? Or me, child, I mean by that child care, kindergarten education. I think they are really, really good uh, uh, concepts and really give you a lot of information. Um, the national guidelines um, have a matrix of who can make the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So, in when we have when we feel um, clearly that we that a, that an individual um, has is showing uh, behaviours consistent with the DSM five um, criteria then we would state that quite clearly in our formulation summary because, um, you know, paediatricians I've worked with say we really want to know that. But we say that um, the diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder, of autism spectrum disorder 
is a um, is from a collaborative opinion, usually from a um, pediatrician or you know medical uh, psychologist and speech pathologist. Um, this is the speech pathology opinion, and then of our recommendations, it would be to get a psychologist assessment and a medical assessment. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, and also to, as I said, for us to try and communicate and alert uh, the medicos that we're working with and the psychologists that we have commenced an assessment so that know that we are going to be an informant as part of the diagnostic process for Mm. that individual. So it sounds like that teamwork or that triad is really emphasised in the guidelines that it's not an individual speech pathologist or an individual psychologist or an individual paediatrician that makes that diagnosis, that it's that triad of professionals working together is that yes something that although comes i don't out want to misrepresent it because the, the guidelines say that you can have a single clinician diagnosis a a medico or a psychologist can make a okay. single clinician oh, okay. diagnosis, Interesting. but they are supposed to only make that after they've gathered information from um you know several sources Right. So, okay. and that's for if it seems to be a very clear diagnosis. If it's if it's a little bit more complex, then there are two assessors. So that mm. might be so one of them would have to be medical, and it might be medical and a speech pathologist, or it could be psychologist and a speech pathologist. Um, and then for the more more complex is when you would have that multi that you know three person team for that um, sort of tertiary level assessment. Um, I think, look, I won't talk about the multi-D team, but I think that has many advantages for families Mm. in terms of efficiencies as well as the family really feeling like they and their child have been heard and seen. Mm. 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 Yeah, I've worked on one before. Mm. They're fantastic and I totally agree with that. Mm. I think families find, I mean, the assessment process is stressful. There's no doubt. Um, Mm. But I feel like families find that assessment process a little bit easier to manage um, in lots of ways compared Mm. to the more um, the assessment process where they're going to multiple different professionals at different times definitely. Um, It's been so lovely speaking with you today Robin it's uh, I just want to give you an enormous thank you for being so willing to share your expertise and also for all you've done for Speech Pathology Australia and our profession more broadly over so many years so thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you, Annika. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you. Likewise. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to this episode of Speak Up. Have a fantastic week ahead and we will be back with another episode next Wednesday. Thank you so much again, Robin. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us speechpathologyaustralia.org.au Thanks for tuning in 